Greetings. My name is Leo Machetti alongside Blake Schmida, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor War Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above oneself, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Today, we share the second part of our series with guests Steve and Bruce Feller, Bob's sons, as well as his grandson, Daniel Feller. That's such a crazy story. I, yeah. you know, being a small kid from the Midwest as well and hearing about his passion uh, to want to become a big league ball player, that's something that I resonate with a lot. And I did a lot of those, those you know, weird kind of trainings that most people wouldn't have thought of. But I had a question. I know that you said Cy Slapnico was was the scout who signed uh, Bob. And I had heard a story that he got signed for $1 and an autographed baseball. And I was wondering if Steve or Bruce, you guys could tell a little bit more of that story. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'll tell you that, Bruce. Um, yeah, so, so, so Cy Slapnica, um, when he signed my dad, uh, I guess the story goes that my dad and his dad were out in the cornfields or wheat fields or whatever on the combine. And, and this guy comes walking through the wheat fields and they thought, who's, who's this guy? And so it turns out that Cy Slapnica is, is the gentleman who's walking through the wheat fields. And he walks up to, to my, my dad's dad, my grandfather, and said, um, I understand your boy's a pretty good pitcher here. And, and, and you know, inside and, and so introduced himself and, and said, uh, when is he going to be pitching next? So my grandpa feller said, well, he'll be pitching in a couple days at so-and-so uh, baseball uh, park. So um, Cy ended up going to the game and uh, – I guess he stood in the out, you know, beyond the outfield, looked at him, and then he went behind home plate. And then uh, after the game, um, I guess he got in contact with uh, my dad's dad and said that uh, he, you know, eventually wanted to sign my dad. So when the signing did occur, it, um, it, 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 there, there was given to him a bonus. He was maybe, I don't know, the first bonus baby of $1. And yeah, who knows what that could be worth today? Maybe, you know, 20 bucks, who knows? I don't know. But also the other thing that was given to him was a, a signed baseball by the current Indians. It, it wasn't a, a Babe Ruth ball, but it was by the current Indians. And, and I'll just, and, and let me go on for one sec and, and, and tell you the story about the Babe Ruth um, and Lou Gehrig signed baseball. And that was in um, 1930, I think it was 30, no, 34, 35, 34, that um, my dad, there, well, the Yankees were traveling and they happened to be in Des Moines. I guess they were going north and, uh, you know, they'd stopped at larger cities along the way and, and had a exhibition game and would charge money so that they could offset the expenses of traveling or spring training or something like that. So the, um, the cost of uh, an, autograph, an autograph from Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth was $5. And, and my dad's dad said, 
you know, if you want to get an autographed baseball, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay for it yourself. Um, you're going to have to earn the money. So my dad had this brilliant idea of he and his friends taking the old Rickenbacker automobile that they had and attaching a hose to the exhaust uh, pipe and putting the exhaust pipe down 50 gopher holes. So, so they, they, yeah, there was an epidemic in Iowa of, of gophers, I guess. So they, they, uh, they gassed out five, I mean, 50 gophers for, for, um, what was it? A dollar. I mean, 10 cents a piece. So they made the $5. My dad went to the game exhibition game and he got the, the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig signed baseball. And I think the baseball now is, is in at the stadium or Jacobs field or whatever, whatever the field is called now. Um, and unfortunately the autographs have almost disappeared. I don't even know if you could read them anymore, but the ball is still there. So there's another autograph baseball story that uh, my dad uh, had that signed before he, he was signed himself. That's a fascinating story. Uh, to continue, continue on with Bob's career, in uh, July of 1936, uh, he made his debut at the age of only 17, and he struck out 15 batters. And uh, three weeks later, he struck out uh, 17. And uh, this is a question for Bruce. Did your dad ever go into details on how he felt about uh, making his first MLB start or after he uh, struck out 17 batters? Well, I don't remember him specifically telling us about that, although I think that you could find details in uh, his book, Strikeout Story, published in the late 40s, where, the, where the, I guess he had a ghostwriter, but they talked, I think they talked extensively about that. But no, I mean, he never sat around the breakfast table and talked about it, unless, Steve, you remember, maybe Marty would have remembered. No, he... I don't yeah, you're right, Bruce. I mean, he never, you know, he never brought home any baseball games that he had pitched. He he just he never talked about it. Once he got home, he left it all on the field. Yeah, um, right. he never he never brought it home and talked to us about any games that he had won or lost or you know what was going on with the Indians. He just he never did. The only thing that I could pick up from one of the books that Bruce just mentioned was that after the uh, after striking out 17, um, he uh, all he wanted to do was to get to get out of the clubhouse and go get a steak. And he he said he was very tired. He just wanted dinner, and he was you know just had to had to have a good meal, get a steak, go to bed go to sleep, wake up the next day and go to the stadium again. But that, but he, yeah, that's about all he ever said about it. Oh, get a milkshake too, probably. Probably a milkshake. Yeah. He was big on milkshakes and peanut butter sandwiches too. It's kind of cool. I, uh, I had no idea until pretty recently that uh, in Van Meter, he actually, there was actually a Bob Feller diner. Is that right? I have never heard of that one. No. Okay. No, there's, there's, there was a museum, which Steve, my, my brother Steve here designed. Uh, and then there was a street called Feller Curve, but that's about all we know. Okay. Yeah, yeah I don't think there was a diner by that name. Um, well, then back to baseball. I had a question for Daniel, and then I'll let Steve and Bruce, you can expand on this too. You know, One thing that many people know about Bob Feller as a pitcher is that 
he just had one of the strongest arms of all time. And I was wondering if you guys had any cool stories about uh, getting to see that on display. I mean, I think his real prime strikeout years were probably finished up by 48. Um, I think he got really crafty after 1948. So Steve might've been three years old watching, you know, some real fastballs, but I think by the time that my dad was born in 1950, he was really relying on, on curveballs and, uh, you know, spotting his pitches really well. And he did, you know, I was reading this amazing book called Our Team by Luke Eplin. It came out recently. Uh, it was about the Indians and, and the process of integration and Larry Doby. It's really a fascinating book. But they're talking about how he kind of became more of a precision pitcher, almost like a Greg Maddox. Uh, you know, after he came back from the war, he developed a slider on the battleship Alabama uh, throwing on deck. But I mean, in terms of tips for throwing hard, I think he was just all about manual labor. He, he thought it was farm work that would make someone, you know, into a real uh, flamethrower. So that, that's what I heard when, when I asked him, hey, how, how can I throw harder? He said, you know, lug some pails of milk to the hogs. And I would say, I don't really have any pigs. Uh, so, but it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, and this is Bruce. I often wonder about uh, the uh, his farm work, how that is different from a, a room full of Nautilus machines. That it's wonder it, it occurs to me that you can't duplicate. Maybe you can, but si scientifically, I'm a scientist. I wonder about, you know, physiologically, what is different about his development. You know, and he, his muscles are growing, his tendons and ligaments were all developing, and at the same time, they were all getting stressed and stretched in different directions. And to sit on a Nautilus machine or six of them, can that duplicate that same experience? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, maybe it's pessimistic in terms of training, but uh, there's something really unique about it, what he went through in those early years of his development. You know, Bruce, that's really interesting because I remember him saying, never, you know, don't get muscle bound. I remember yeah. him saying that, and it had to do with more of stretching, you know, ligaments and, and um, things like that rather than muscles. Um, so he was dead set against any really heavy, heavy weights. It was more light weights and, and uh, yeah, calisthenics. I mean, he just, he did a ton of calisthenics, jumping jacks and push-ups and geez, always. Um, and we and had a punching bag all, all those years. He's always oh, yeah. punching that's right. The punching bag too. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, then he would get spring, you know, for your hands, you squeeze these little spring things and he was always squeezing those. Yeah. Well, he had that. And then he'd, he'd always have a, a rubber ball in his hand too, just squeezing the rubber ball. Just, just to like what, yeah, just to improve the strength of your fingers, you know, for the grip of the ball. And then those, those fingertip push-ups also would help strengthen your fingers too. Um, there, there is also a book, a 1939 book that I have that um, the athletic director at Rollins College years ago told me about, and I found a copy of it, and I have it. It's interesting. It was written by a Dr. Crom Crompton, and it analyzed the way my dad you know, every movement of, of, of his uh, pitching and just analyzing, you know, every muscle in his body and at, in, in very small increments. 
as to when he started the warm up all the way through, you know, when he released the pitch. And it's just kind of fascinating in a 1939 book of, of how um, this gentleman, this doctor analyzed his pitching form and, and to tell what muscles were, were um, in use at that time. And evidently, my dad just found the right combination of yeah, good old farm work, the farmer's walk, and and shucking corn, and who knows what all that he did. But it just it worked for him. It just worked for him. Uh, moving away from baseball, we understand Bob had a friendship with the former president Ronald Reagan, and uh, he met Reagan through uh, him being a play-by-play commentator for Des Moines I uh, radio station. And this is uh, for Steve. Uh, did your dad ever mention uh, his his relationship with him? Um, not not really, not that much. I think I'll I'll say a few words. Then Bruce has something to say on that too. He, my dad, met Ronald Reagan um, in let's see, nineteen thirty seven. I think that's when my dad graduated from high school. And his high school graduation ceremony was probably, it, it was the first high school, gradua- high school graduation ceremony that was ever on national radio. I think somewhere we have a recording of it, but it was actually on national radio. And then after the graduation, my dad was interviewed by two people, one of which was a sports writer from WHO in Des Moines and his name just happened to be Ronald Reagan. And so that was the first time that they had ever met that I know of. And so they carried on a relationship all the way through the end of you know Ronald Reagan's life. And um, I think Bruce has some letters from Ronald Reagan to my dad. Yeah, and I, I th- also Reagan was, he was an announcer. He would travel around the state, you know, Iowa, Maybe they met up at the ballparks out there in Iowa for farm league stuff. I'm not sure, but uh, but uh, anyhow, um, yeah. Later, after World War II, our parents would met him out in Hollywood. We've got some photos of it um, once World War II was over. But and so we found a letter in ni- in August 1949. Reagan sent Dad a long letter asking him a favor. So we have the letter here. <laughs> And, and I'll read it out loud. Uh, if that's okay, we got time. Uh, it says, Dear Bob, this is August 11th, 1949. I know how busy you are, and yet I'm writing to you for a favor, which can mean a lot to a little guy out here. First, I'd better explain the letterhead. The letterhead says, St. John's Hospital, Sisters of Charity, Santa Monica, California. While I am home now, the above has been my uh, address for the past two months. I'm, his writing is a little compressed and I'll be on crutches for four more months. It seems I forgot my age and played in a charity baseball game while beating out a bunt. The first baseman thought it would be cute to block me off the bag. Well, he did. And my thigh ended up in four pieces. Now to get back to the favor, uh, through my injury, I ran into a boy 10 years of age who was a case for a psychologist. His father, his father was a war hero, came home on leave and killed himself and the boy's mother. A friend and myself, by sheer accident, managed to break through the kid's shell on the subject of baseball. He's an ardent fan, and it seems to be his one real interest. 
course, I became head man when I tossed your name around uh, as somebody I knew personally. You, of course, know what is coming. With a birthday coming up, he'd be in heaven if he had a baseball bearing uh, your name. If, if you could do this, Bob, and send the ball to me here, and he gave his address in Holmby Hills in, in L.A., he said, you'd contribute a lot towards putting this little guy out of a dark world that he's been making for himself. I know this is an imposition, Bob, and I would hesitate to bother you if I didn't believe it could do a lot to really help a nice little kid who can very easily end up haywire. Best to you always, Ronald Reagan, quote, Dutch. And then, and then uh, we found 33 years later a letter from the White House in 1982. It says, Dear Bob, Ed Meese has shown me your letter. And you all remember Ed Meese was Reagan's counselor. He was on his cabinet, and then he became the attorney general. So he said, Dear Bob, Ed Meese has shown me your letter and the copy of my 1949 letter. So apparently my dad must have sent, sent him the letter years later just so they could reminisce about old times. As first of all, thank you for that, and then thank you again for sending the baseball more than 30 years ago. I'll confess I'm more than a little overwhelmed that you kept the letter. I'll sign this one the same way. I remember in 1949, I did it in case you didn't remember me. Now I'll do it for old Lang Syne. Again, thanks and best regards, Ronald Reagan Dutch. <laughs> so that's our Reagan story. That is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard to know that two guys who met in Iowa turned out, well, obviously Bob was already a superstar at the time, but just American icons uh, who, who got to share a relationship like, like that. It was such a heartwarming story to, to hear Reagan's letter to Bob and, and know that he, uh, he was able to touch somebody's life like that. I, I can add something about Ronald Reagan, too, is that in 1981, Ronald Reagan invited Bob to the White House for lunch uh, and Bob framed the menu. And now I have that in my kitchen. So, you know, when I'm going to heat up a microwavable burrito, I can look at see how Bob Feller and Ronald Reagan ate lobster bisque and chocolate mousse in February of 1981 that in, at the White House, which is a pretty, pretty cool thing. That that's pretty dang funny. Not not quite lobster bisque, but sleep on the microwavable burritos for sure. Uh, oh no, Dad, he knew every president since Eisenhower. In fact, I think he visit our parents visited Ike down at the in Key West. There was the Key West White House, I think, back in the early fifties. Remember that, Steve? Uh, yeah, but I yeah I know he knew Eisenhower. Yeah, and the Bushes, of course, and then he actually gave Bill Clinton quote. Uh, a pitching lesson when Cleveland Jacobs Field opened up in the early 90s. He wasn't real thrilled about Clinton, I'll just say that, but he still, you know, he gave him a good pitching lesson. <laughs> That's incredible. And, you know, kind of going along with the, the stories about all of our nation's presidents, uh, you know, Bob played an important part um, in our country as well, having enlisted in uh, the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor. And he was the first MLB player to do so did did he ever talk about those experiences while serving in the navy with you guys steve uh, go first well you know again not not that often i i remember um yeah what i remember is him talking about when he was on the alabama he was the uh what the gun captain on a 40 millimeter 
anti-aircraft mount. He had a crew of 24 that he led. And and I was I was on the Alabama and saw that gun that he he was inside of this big turret. It's just amazing to be in there. It's just pitch black. And I remember him telling the story about um, one of the scariest things is that when they were attacked at night and they had to be inside this turret with this big, uh, what do I want to call it? Um, a, a, a muzzle, um, just, you know, turning about and, and shooting these 40 millimeter uh, shots at airplanes that um, every now and then at dawn, they would find somebody on the deck who had been hit by this gun as a turn because you couldn't even light a match on the ship. There were zero lights. It was pitch black on the ship. And, and so nobody, you know, outside knew where the gun was going to be pointing to. And so that just stuck with me that, you know, some of the sailors may have been killed by you know, the actions of the guns just moving. But he um, he never really talked to us as, you know, our family about that. Um, I mean, being in, in the Navy, but I, I know that just going to a lot of his talks and whatever, he would just, he would love to talk uh, World War II and Navy to, um, you know, to crowds. Um, that uh, he would be invited to talk to, and especially he would talk to military people who were there. He just uh, loved to bring up the, uh, when he was in uh, uh, Northern Iceland and when they, he was in the Mariana Turkey shoot and just, you know, all through his career in the Navy, he just loved to talk in public about that. Not really that much in private. He did, he did lose his hearing in one ear. Uh, I don't know if the ear protection was as good as it is today when they were shooting these things, but uh, he couldn't hear very well out of one ear. And he said it was because of the, the gun. Yeah. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the things that I remember is that he, he said that, um, you know, being in the war, um, or, or being on being on the Alabama when when he was being attacked, you know, especially at night, he said that was so scary. That was so scary. So when he's you know he survived that, he said, you know, when I'm pitching in Yankee Stadium, um, it doesn't really affect me uh, because um, baseball is just a game. Yeah. Yeah. And his most proud moment was, um, well, the four years he was in Navy. That was way more important than all his baseball records. Way more important. He was more proud of that than all, every single one of his baseball records. That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, to wrap us up here, um, the last question I have is for Daniel, but if Steve and Bruce want to chime in, uh, feel free to go ahead. And uh, as the foundation approaches its 10th year, if Bob was still around, how would he view the work we've done uh, in his name? You want me to answer this one? Yes, that'd be great, Daniel. Thank you. Um, 
Well, he would obviously be thrilled. Uh, I think the Bob Feller Active Valor Award uh, really brings together all the things my grandfather loved, you know, baseball, service to the country, uh, the Navy. And I think a lot of people that have been honored by the Active Valor Foundation, you know, were some of them were friends of my grandfather. So he would, you know, be so thrilled that his friends like Yogi Berra uh, were, were honored with an award. And um, yeah, I, I just think he would, he would really love it. And it would have been awesome to see him at the, the gatherings in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, talking to the cadets from the Navy baseball team and, you know, hobnobbing with Randy Johnson and all the admirals who served on nuclear submarines. I think, uh, you know, it would have been his life stream uh, to see that happen. So, yeah, he's, he's grateful and the, the Feller family is super grateful, too. Yeah, he's he considered one of the greatest honors of his lifetime, uh, bar none. I mean, also because it honors all those who fought and died to keep America, millions of other people around the world, so you could live under true democracies for generations. That was the most important thing for him. You know, and the, the secretaries of the Navy come come every year to this uh, Act of Valor Award. It's, it's a real tribute to him. He, he would have just been so humbled by all that. Yeah, and I, I think he'd also really, really enjoy the, the fact that how, how the award has been expanded with, you know, the student intern program and the scholarship program, military scholarships and all that. It's just great how it's been expanded. And then also the Jerry Coleman Award also to the, Marine, the Marines. Um, yeah, he would, he would love that. Yeah, it's just too bad that he can't be around for the ceremony. He would love it. To conclude this episode, we'd like to thank the Feller family for joining us. This has been a very special episode. Uh, we'd like to also thank you, uh, thank our listeners, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. To our listeners, this conversation with the Feller family concludes this episode of the American Valor podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, the Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Guardians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comments section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevaloraward.org. There you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor Podcast and more. For Leo Manchetti, Blake Schmida, and everyone at the American Valor Podcast, Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.